following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, we're going to dive into, we're almost finished this series in Philippians now, just a couple of messages to go. We've been at this since March. Man, it's taken us through that season. We're meeting at the hub and now transition back to here. It's carried us through some interesting times, but um, been a good season, been a good series for us, I think. So Philippians chapter four, and the wonderful Jill Shaw is going to come and read this for us this morning. Philippians chapter four, verse 10 through 13 is our scripture focus this morning. I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Thanks, Jill. Okay, let's start with a little bit of history this morning, shall we? Let me take you back to the 1920s. This was the age of the automobile, uh, at least in the United States. Um, cars weren't quite such a big thing here yet, but this was really the decade that the automobile got going in the US. Before the 1920s, not that many people in America owned a car. It was mainly just a toy for really super rich people. But during the 1920s, it took off, and automobile ownership just increased dramatically. And this was the age of the battle between uh, General Motors, on the one hand, and Ford, the big contest between these two automobile companies, and they took quite different strategies. So Ford, this was Henry Ford, he basically just worked on the Model T, the one vehicle, and just trying to make the engine as good as he could, trying to get the production as efficient as they could, trying to make it as economical as they could to get the car into the hands of as many American families as they could. General Motors took quite a different strategy. They had quite a diverse range of cars, And what they would do is every year they would keep making these aesthetic changes. So they'd change the body of a particular model. They wouldn't do much to the engine. They wouldn't do much to the mechanics. Same car, but they'd make some tweaks to the body of the car. And then they would release it as a new model. You see, they cottoned on to something, didn't they? And of course, when you release the new model, what's everyone got to have? The new model, right? What's everyone thinking about the old model? No good. Need the new model. And this is how GM got ahead. By the end of the 1920s, they were the market leader because they knew how to work the consumer. In 1929, Charles Kettering, who was the CEO of General Motors, he wrote an article called Keeping the Consumer Dissatisfied. And in it, he said this, the key to economic prosperity is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. If everyone was satisfied, no one would want to buy the new thing. And with that, sentence, the age of consumerism was born. Americans were transformed from being citizens to being consumers. It's not quite that simple, but that's basically 
uh, how we got to where we got to. You know, all of a sudden, you've got the strategy of bringing out the new model and the new model and the new model, and so people don't want the old model anymore. This is how the market works. You have to keep people in a constant state of dissatisfaction. And you would have to say, fast forward now almost 100 years, here we are, 21st century New Zealand has much changed. Well, it's, it's just intensified, hasn't it? That is still the foundation of the consumer culture that we live within. You could probably say today it's a hyper-consumer culture. And this same premise sits under so much of the way that we live, the way that we consume, the way that we purchase, the way that we experience life, that we exist in this state of dissatisfaction. Our culture conditions us to be dissatisfied, to be discontent, because only when we are dissatisfied are we going to want the next thing. And we have to want the next thing, right? We've always got to get the better and the newer and the faster and the sleeker and the smaller and the slicker and the whatever, fancier, colorfuler. We've got to get the next thing. We've got to get the upgrade. We've got to get the new model. It starts young, doesn't it? I see it with our boys. I remember when Josh was, he must have only been three or four years old. And he was watching some program on TV some cartoon, and then after the cartoon, it went straight into an infomercial, and I didn't think much about it at the time. It was an infomercial for pillows. Well, he came out the next morning, and he announced to us all, I think I need a Bambillo pillow. <laughs> he said, my pillow's too soft or too hard. I can't remember what he said, but he, suddenly his pillow was useless, and he had to have the Bambillo pillow. And at that moment, I thought, we are breeding a little consumer here, aren't we? This is a little consumer capitalist right there. And now it's Lego and everything. You know, it's got to be the next Lego, the next thing constantly, right? And we're no different as adults, right? We've got to have the next phone. Uh, our phone's good until you see the next upgrade. You've got to have the next video game. You know, as soon as the next one's released, you've got to have that. You've got to have the next pair of shoes. Got to have the next power tool. Got to have the upgraded kitchen. Got to have the next house or the next batch or the next jet ski or whatever it is. You know, on and on and on it goes. And so we basically live lives, and I don't think there's too much difference here between Christians and non-Christians. We live in this state of dissatisfaction. Never content, never really satisfied, always thinking that real contentment is just one click away. Is that right? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. One click away, one purchase away, one transaction away, and then all my dreams will be fulfilled. Then I'll reach this blissful state. And of course, what happens when you click and you purchase and you buy, you're happy for five minutes, and then the discontentment sits back in again. And then you need to have the next thing. Welcome to the age of consumerism. This is where we live. And I think in this age, in this cultural moment, we need to hear what Paul says in this passage with real force and real power because he is speaking right into this context of a discontented, dissatisfied culture. Paul didn't live in quite the same consumer society that we did, but we've talked, those of you that have tracked through this series, we've talked several times, haven't we, about the way what Paul writes just seems to speak with such relevance like he's writing 2,000 years ago to first century Philippi, but he might as well have been writing to 21st century Auckland. This is just eerily similar to the context that we find ourselves in today. So this is relevant and pertinent stuff, something I think we really need to hear in the midst of a consumer context that we live in. So let's look at what Paul says about how we can really pursue contentment, deep contentment, true contentment. He says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, pause there for a minute. What Paul is doing here, the language that he's using is drawn from a particular philosophy. It's called Stoicism. Might have heard of it. It's where we get the word stoic. So if you think of someone who's really stoic, who's kind of unmoved by life, unaffected by things, that is from the belief system of Stoicism. It was a big deal in the first century. It's making a bit of a comeback today, actually. There's a few celebrities that are into Stoicism. And the, the, the essence of Stoicism is that your goal in life, if you're a Stoic, is to be self-sufficient. What you really want to try and attain is this kind of state where you're totally uninfluenced and unaffected by whatever happens around you and however much you have. So you could go through a really good experience and a really terrible experience, but you are just the same. All the way. You, you exist in this serene state of contentment, totally unperturbed by whatever happens around you and whatever happens within you. You could experience highs and lows, but you still just rise above it all and you have this state of total self-sufficiency. That's the virtue. That's the life of Stoicism. So for Stoics, like they would agree that contentment was a good thing because they wanted to be content. They didn't want to have this sort of dissatisfaction, this sort of discontentment. It would, it would disrupt the equilibrium. So they would agree with Paul up to this point. They would look at this, and if they read this, if they heard this, they would say, yeah, Paul, you're right on the money. We, we do need to learn to be content, whatever the circumstance. We, we don't mind if we're well-fed or if we're hungry, if we're living in plenty, if we're living in want. We don't mind, Paul, we're right with you. Contentment is so important. They would have tracked the whole way up to verse 13. And then what Paul says in verse 13, he drops the bombshell. And this is what separates out Stoicism from Christianity and every other belief system. He says in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the difference. And the him is Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is, yeah, it's all very well to believe in the ideal of contentment. Plenty of people believed in that. But Paul is saying the source of our contentment is not self-sufficiency as the Stoics believed. It is Christ-sufficiency. It is being sufficient in and through Jesus Christ. In Him, I can be content. Now this verse, verse 13, it is probably one of the most chronically misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible, isn't it? You know this, right? You've seen this. Maybe you've done this. It is one of those verses that just people love to pull out of its context. We do this with Bible verses all the time, but something about Philippians 4.13 just makes it a goldmine for this. And we grab this verse, we rip it out of its context, and then it kind of becomes like the classic interpretation is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means, people think it means, I can achieve all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or I can be victorious in all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why athletes get this verse tattooed on their chest, tattooed on their wrist. Because they take it to mean, I can win any competition through Christ who strengthens me. I can win any game. I can beat any team through Jesus who strengthens me. The problem is, that is, that is ignoring the context in which Paul makes this statement. Right? It's the first three rules of interpreting the Bible. Context, context, context. It's so important. If you're going to get that verse tattooed, if you've got it tattooed on your wrist, that's okay. But on the other wrist, just tattoo the word context, okay? <laughs> that, will, that will help you, all right? Tattoo it in Greek if you need to. 
But context, people, is so important. And the context of what Paul is saying is contentment. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying I can achieve my own personal goals through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I can be victorious in every situation. He is saying I can be content in all things. The the several verses leading up to this one make it clear that what Paul is talking about is a heart of contentment in everything. So you could translate that verse, I can be content in all situations. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context that we've got to hear this verse within. So the real key to contentment is not the sense of self-sufficiency, it is Christ-sufficiency. It is only in and through Jesus that we're going to find real contentment. And the kind of contentment that Jesus brings into our lives is not just a contentment with what you have. It's not just a contentment with your money, and it's not just a contentment with your stuff. It goes much deeper than that. If we're going to really discover contentment, it's going to start at the depth of our being. It's going to start by really discovering what it means to be content in God. You'll you'll never be content with what you have until you're content with who Christ is and who Christ is for you. Until you can rest in the sufficiency of God's grace and God's love, you'll never be content with the stuff around you. See, we've got these deep, deep human desires, every one of us. Desires that are given to us by God. Every one of us have them. It's part of what makes us human. We've got a desire for community. We've got a desire for relationship. You've got a desire to be loved. You've got a desire to, be, to have security. You've got a desire to be known. You've got a desire for freedom. You've got a desire for identity. Those are good desires, right? God gave those desires to you. There's nothing wrong with them. Those go to the core of our being. That's part of who we are as human beings. The problem is we try to fulfill those desires in the wrong way. And this is what leads to a life of discontentment. That we think our need for relationship, rather than trying to meet that need in God, we think it's going to be met in deodorant or Netflix or another kitchen or the next car or whatever it is. We think these deep desires are going to be met through really superficial things. I know you don't think that you're doing this, but at a deep subconscious level, this is how we live. And we can all sit here going, no, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. And we all walk out here and this is how we live. We're all functional consumers, whether we're willing to own up to it or not. So we're trying to take deep, deeply embedded desires, and we are trying to satisfy those desires. And I mean, like advertisers know this, right? The marketers know this. That marketing, I used to work in PR, right? I know a thing or two about marketing, and marketers understand human psychology. So they know how to sell products, Not by selling you the product, but by selling you the desire being fulfilled. So you're not just buying deodorant. You're buying relationship, right? It's tapping into something. It's tapping into deep human desire. You're not just buying that car. What are you buying? Identity, right? Security. You're not just buying that dress. You're buying status. You're not just buying that perfume. You're buying love, yeah? You're not just buying that house. You're buying identity. That's what we are craving, and that's what we think these material things are going to bring into our lives at a deep level. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his article, The Weight of Glory. 
And he says, these desires that we've got are good desires. The problem is we don't express them in the right way. The problem is, he says, our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. And we end up settling for too little. He says, we're like children who are playing with mud pies in the slums rather than the offer of a holiday at sea. And that's what it is. It's like we're making mud pies in the slums, trying to satisfy deep desires through just more things, the next thing, more stuff, accumulating possessions, when all the time God is saying to us, come to me. Come to me. I will fill you at the deepest level. I will satisfy your desires. I'm not going to give you every single material thing that you want, but I'm going to satisfy you at the level of your soul. That's why St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, we've all got these restless hearts. And as long as you're looking for security and status and identity and all of these other things, you are never going to truly have a heart that is at rest. God is saying, I will lead your heart to rest. Only he can do it. Only God can truly bring deep contentment into your life because only he can satisfy you at the deepest level. That's why Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. How easy is it for you to say that this morning? Your grace, God, is sufficient for me. I think most of us want to say, your grace plus that car would be sufficient for me. Your grace plus, you know, this and that and the other. Then that will be sufficient for me. But this is where contentment begins and ends, is being able to come to God and say, God, your grace is sufficient. If God gave you his grace, and then he left you destitute with nothing else for the rest of your life, he would still be a good, good father, wouldn't he? He would still be endlessly gracious because he's given you the most important thing, which is his grace bestowed upon your life. That's where we've got to find our contentment. That's where we've got to find our sufficiency. And having Jesus fill our soul, we've got to keep leading our soul to rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. Now, out of that place then we can start to deal with the practical elements of contentment in our lives. And let me just touch on two areas of contentment that we need to consider. The first is what we could think of as material contentment. It's being content with our money and our stuff. Okay, as we learn sufficiency in Christ, then we're much better positioned to start looking at our money and our stuff and being able to learn the practice of contentment. There's some research that's been done uh, that, that asks people how much more money they think they would need in order to be happy. And you know how much it is? It's 10%. It's always 10%. Amazingly consistent across different income brackets. Doesn't matter how rich you are or poor you are, you just feel like you need another 10%. right? And that's true, right? You just feel, man, if I just had that extra 10% buffer, if I just had that extra bit, I would be, we'd be so much more comfortable and we could afford this and we'd be able to get to that and we'd be able to maneuver here. And then, of course, if you get that extra 10%, then you're going to feel like you need another 10%. And on it goes, keeping your heart continually dissatisfied. So I think there is some new, some new language that we need to learn as Christians. In fact, there's a new word that I want to teach you. Okay, I'm going to encourage you to use this word sometime this week. It's the word enough. All right, do you want to try saying it? Enough, right? That is a word that flies in the face of our consumer culture. 
Because consumerism is built on more and it's built on next, but it's not built on enough. If everyone said enough, man, we'd live in a different kind of world. But could you look at your bank accounts and say, I have enough. That's hard, isn't it? I know, because every little fiber, fiber of your being feels like I want more. But this is what Jesus teaches our heart, is to look at our money and say, I have enough. And to look at our stuff and say, I have enough. Can you look at your wardrobe and say that? I have enough. Come on. Can you look at your power tools and say that? Oh, no, it's too far. It's too far now. We can't go back. That's hard to do, you know. And you know, what the, you know what the sweet spot is for you in this area. You know what the weakness is for you. What is that area? What is that thing that's hard for you to look at and say, I have enough. It's, it's such a healthy place to be, though. If you can bring your soul and ask God to bring your soul to that point of saying, I have enough. And that comes out of a deep place of trusting God. Because the Bible says, God, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. God has given you what you have. You don't need more. You don't need to constantly clamor after the next thing. I think we just upgrade way too quickly. We, we move on to the next thing way too fast. We throw out the old thing way too easily. Now, we've all got to try and make the decision for ourselves, right? Of when, when it's time to upgrade, when it's time to get the next thing. But I want to encourage you to slow down, right? Maybe the time to get the next thing is when the old one runs out. Not just when you get bored of it. Maybe the time to get the next thing is when the old one's got holes in it. Not just when you walk past a shop and see the next thing. Maybe the time to get the next thing is when the old one becomes obsolete, which with Apple is about five minutes, to be fair. So it can be fast and it can be slow and we're never to judge another person. I'm not saying there's never a time to get the new TV or the new watch or the new Nintendo or the whatever. I'm just saying maybe we could slow down a little bit and ask, am I content and can I say enough? Here's another phrase you might want to try out this week. I can make do. How easy is that to say? I can make do. Do we need that next thing? Even just to ask the question, you may get through that process and decide, yes, we do. We genuinely need that next thing. But even to have a filter of asking the question is a really healthy thing. Can we make do? Could we make do just a little bit longer? Can I make do in that area? Ask yourself those questions because it will begin to teach your heart to be content. It's not easy, is it? But that's why, again, I come back. None of this is going to make sense unless you find your sufficiency in Christ. If your heart's not already resting in him, you'll always be clamoring after the next thing. It's only Jesus that can give you the power to live this out in your life. Let me talk about a second area of contentment. And we could call this situational contentment. I think a lot of the time a discontentment just comes from the place in life that you are. So some of you right now are discontent in your job and you're just daydreaming about another job most of the time. And you just think, if I, if I just had that other, I feel trapped in this job. I just wish I could have been in this kind of line of work. Some of you are discontent at where you are in your career at this point and you just live with this dissatisfaction that this is where you are and I wish I was further ahead. Some of you are stay-at-home parents and you wish you were back at work and you're discontent. Some of you are single and you wish you were married. Some of you are married, you wish you were single. 
Some of you are in a, just a place of life where you just feel this kind of, I wish I had another life. I wish I was someplace else or doing something else. Paul talks about this so brilliantly in another one of his letters in 1 Corinthians 7. I want to read this to you from the message translation because Eugene Peterson puts this so brilliantly. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, here's how he translates it. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Isn't that great? That is so good. I think some of us need to hear that this morning. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Don't spend your day daydreaming about the other job that you really wish you had and the other version of you that you wish you were living that other life. Oh, that, ultimately, that's a failure to trust what God has given you in the present. You ask, how can I love people and love God right here? Where has God put you? What's he given you to do right now? What's he placed in front of you? That's what you put your hand to. That's what you give your life to. That's what you invest yourself in. How can you love? How can you serve? How can you obey? How can you believe right there? If you're a stay-at-home parent at the moment, don't spend your life wishing that you were around other adults, wishing that you were back at work, wishing that you could have an income again, wishing that someone would tell you you've done a good job once in a while. But you love and serve right there in the midst of the dirty nappies, in the midst of all of the mess. Love and believe that that is where God has placed you. That is good work. That is kingdom work. That is precious work. You serve God and serve your family right there. If you're single, don't spend your life daydreaming about being with someone. Don't spend your life just wishing that you were in this relationship and that you had the husband or the wife or the boyfriend or the girlfriend. You ask, how can I serve God right where I am now as a single person? What has God given me to do now? How can I be faithful now? How can I love him now? How can I grow now? There's things that you can do as a single person that you can't do when you're married. Jesus was single. Paul was single. It's a high value the Bible puts on a single life. Now you ask yourself, how can I be faithful where God's placed me? Rather than always living for the grass that's greener on the other side, let's learn to say, what is right in front of me? And where has God placed me? And how can I be faithful in the here and now? As we wrap up, I want to lead us this morning through a prayer, time of personal reflection, because I think what we're talking about runs so deep and often we just don't realize the depth of dissatisfaction in our own hearts sometimes. We can think that we know, but there's dark corners in our heart that are often are really discontent. These things run so deep and ultimately we're powerless to figure this stuff out on our own. I want to encourage you to just take a few minutes and I'm going to read out a prayer that just leads us through a process of bringing this discontentment in all these different areas of life to God and allowing him by his spirit to gently work on these things. I want to encourage you just to close your eyes and take a breath and just be in a space where you can really hear from God. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to open your life up and your heart up to God's challenge. Maybe, maybe the rebuke that needs to come, maybe a gentle nudge, maybe some encouragement. But just open your life up to what God might want to say to you. Maybe he's wanting to put his finger on particular areas. But let's allow the Spirit to speak into the discontentment in our hearts and lead us, lead us to that place where we can say, God, you are our shepherd. 
and we have everything we need. We shall not be in want. Let me read this prayer. O Lord, you are my shepherd, and I should not be in want. But so often I struggle to be content, and I do want. Forgetting that you have graciously provided me with every spiritual blessing in Christ and everything I need for life and godliness. Thank you for often not giving me what I want. Because my desires would draw my heart from being satisfied in you. Help me to be content in you with what you have given me. And not to be focused on what my flesh wants or what the world tells me that I should have. Protect me from coveting possessions or people, talent or influence, relationships or prestige. Keep my heart from being anxious for what I don't have. And make me thankful for the numerous gifts that you've already given. According to your word and your steadfast love, fill me with the joy and the satisfaction of contentment in Christ. Help me to learn to be content in any situation like Paul. And to quickly reject the idolatry that dwells beneath the surface of my craving. I ask you to continually bring to mind your faithful provision for my needs. That Christ died for the sin of coveting. And that in Christ I'm free to be content and to live righteously. And that godliness with contentment is greater gain than pleasing my flesh. May I be humbled and changed by the ultimate example of contentment of Christ becoming poor in order that I could become rich and being content to go to the cross to fulfill the Father's will, to rescue a people for himself who can be free from discontent and zealous for good works. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.